the Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Collective Whisper Podcast with your host, Simon King. So I hope you guys are well today. We have another interesting guest lined up for you. Before we get to that guest, we just want to remind you to please support the show. I'd just like to ask you to follow and like, and wherever you see a review, please leave a review for the show, and we hope you're enjoying it so far. I'd like to welcome Vanessa Rook to the show. Motorcycle racer and traveler, freelance consultant, writer, presenter, social curator, and model and adventurer, and she has over 210,000 followers. Vanessa Rook was born and raised in England. She is a go-getter, chase-your-dreams kind of girl. Having endured a horrific accident six years ago, Vanessa has been on a long and bumpy road to recovery. Six complex surgeries, including shoulder and hip reconstruction and years of physiotherapy and rehabilitation, and Vanessa has trained to enter two of the largest European rally and hard Endura races while undergoing more surgeries and dealing with the effects of her injuries. She began riding dirt bikes three years ago and according to her, it was a natural transition. Vanessa had always been an adrenaline and outdoors fanatic, enjoying extreme sports like kite surfing, wakeboarding, snowboarding and mountain biking. However, unable to go back to those sports, Vanessa took up motorcycling as it was completely new and initially something she could do without much physical demands, cruising on a Harley Davidson, but the thirst for adrenaline quickly grew as her body recovered. She's currently actively training and prepping for her upcoming rallies, but Vanessa still has to deal with recurring bouts of pain. She says the most important thing is finding balance between pushing your limits and accepting them. Vanessa Rook, welcome to the show. How are you? Hey, I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. You're welcome. You're welcome. It's great to have you on. Um, I've been watching some of your posts on LinkedIn and I came across you when I'm, you know, sometimes I'm looking for guests and I'm like, who would be interesting? Because on this podcast, we like to get interesting guests and people who have a different life story and, you know, aren't just the normal kind of things we see every day. And I came across your story and I thought that's quite interesting. And it's, you know, the achievements you've had so far and the things you've been doing. So I think it's great. So you know, um, thank you for coming on the show, first of all. Pleasure. <laughs> you told me earlier you're, you're in Wales, aren't you? Yeah, I'm in South Wales in, in the Wye Valley, so a pretty beautiful part of the world, particularly lifestyle-wise. There's lots of uh, outdoor activities around here. Okay, have you have you always been living there? Like, because you're from Oxfordshire, aren't you? I'm actually from Kent. I was living in Oxfordshire for the last sort of 11 years, and I moved here back in the summer. So I haven't been okay. here that long, but my family are all around here. Is life different there for you now? Because I'm I'm sure with with all your travels and everything, it's nice to come home to, isn't it? Oh, definitely. It's very nice having that home nest. So I'd kind of describe this as like our forever home, but it's a serious project house. Uh, very much kind of a, a working, building, living site kind of thing. And we're doing it all ourselves, so it's going to take a little bit of time. But it's our own little piece of heaven. We've got a really really nice decent garage workshop for the motorbikes and then the cottage we've got to do a lot of work on but it's uh, an amazing foundation is it um an old build or a new build 1820s welsh stone cottage really yeah it's lovely yes a lot of heritage a lot of history and a lot of work because it's not had much work <laughs> yes i i used to work as a carpenter and i worked in houses like this and they are beautiful, but you know when you have these sometimes five foot, ten foot thick walls of stone, and you know you're trying to work with them, and things are not as square as they should be, and you know it's it's hard, it's a lot of work, and they're big projects, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, definitely. So tell us, Vanessa, right now you've just finished the the Rally de Maroc, or and, you know, so are you recovering from that? Did you get any kind of injuries? Or are you feeling okay? I, I feel like my body is still in post-race mode. For anyone listening who doesn't know what Rally de Maroc is, it's a six-day desert roadbook rally out in Morocco that has incredibly long days. So the longest day we did was 730 kilometers, obviously all on a motorcycle. You have huge advanced stretches of dunes and deep sand, hard pack rocks and quite aggressive riding. And you keep doing that for, for six days in a row. My longest day was 13 hours and 45 minutes. 
So it was pretty exhausting. I was pretty proud of my fitness going into it. I definitely know that I need to get fitter and fitter and fitter. I haven't got any injuries from it, which I'm very pleased about. I rode it. I rode pretty solid. I did have one big off where my airbag went off, but I'm uh, I'm doing well. I've been just kind of wanting to eat all the time, smashing loads of my active collagen, which is something I swear by, both in recovery and uh, performance. I'm trying to sleep lots. <laughs> trying to sleep lots. Explain to us about the the active collagen. What's that? Explain what what. Yeah, so I I started taking it probably coming up on two years ago now, and I was at a point. So I don't know how many listeners know about my past with regards to the accident, but I've got a reconstructed right shoulder and right hip, and I've had seven surgeries over a seven year recovery period, and I was really struggling with just kind of taking my recovery to the next level. And I discovered the active collagen, which is, so collagen is the the biggest protein in the body. And it's an incredibly important part of our elasticity, I would say. So if you think about traditional protein, like whey protein, um, this is like simplifying it to how I process this information. So don't quote me on this, but whey protein is tends to be for sort of strength and density, whereas collagen is more about the elasticity. So if you think about injuries, recovery, you're talking about elasticity of the muscles, the tendons, ligaments. It also supports bone strength. It's really good for your, your scare, uh, skin and hair. Obviously, I was thinking, you know, you're thinking I look really young. <laughs> it's got so many benefits for your body's ability to recover function and then also repair and perform. Now, I started taking it for really for trying to help me with my pain and then since I've got more active I've realized I mean I don't think I'll ever stop taking it it's absolutely fantastic I've become an ambassador for for you perform now as well because I just swear by it I want I want to tell everyone who's got any kind of aches or pain or anyone who's doing any kind of performance high performance sport or even you know trying to get out running a little bit more it's a fantastic tool for the body so if anyone's interested drop me a message i do have a, a friend discount code how do you apply it is it like a cream or is it so a, a pill you take no you get to eat it See, it's better than any kind of green you get to eat it it's like a little sachet and it's kind of an intense citrus like a gel and you suck it out and eat it I then also ah. have swapped my normal protein shake that I'd have every day with the collagen and whey protein. So you get a bit more collagen in that. And that's just a typical shake. Uh, I actually have a scoop of protein on my cereal every morning to give me protein with my breakfast. And then they also do a little tablet form collagen, which I, I take as well. All the collagen, as much goodness for the body as possible. You have an overabundance of collagen, so that can be only a, a good thing. Yeah, absolutely. The body stops producing collagen in the same quantity at about 23. And so as we get older and older, the collagen in our body decreases, but we still need it just as much. So it actually becomes more and more important to be putting that collagen into the body. Okay, brilliant, brilliant. That's really interesting. I mean, anything I suppose that we can do to slow down, you know, father time or, you know, mother nature is a good thing in in a sense. And I suppose when something's very organic and natural as well, it makes it much easier, doesn't it? Yeah, definitely. We've only got one home to live our lives in. So I try to do everything I can to keep mine going, particularly given my history. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we're going to go back a little bit, if you don't mind, and we're just going to kind of talk about, you know, I, I, I understand you grew up in Oxfordshire, didn't you? Kind of in, I'm from Kent originally. Kent originally, yeah. yeah. So tell us about that, you know, your your family history there. Your, were your parents from there? Did you move there? Uh, I grew up in Kent and lived there all the way through till when I left home for university. My parents have moved all over the place, but I mean, that's where they lived from when they had sort of started family. I had a very, very lucky, full of love, happiness, adventure kind of childhood. They were always, you know, bored wasn't a word I was allowed to use. If I was bored, it was me with a lack of imagination on how to entertain myself. Go outside and climb a tree or play in the mud go out on your bicycle and it was very sort of active outdoory growing up had an old brother and then we always hung out with my two cousins who were both boys similar ages to me and my brother which meant it was always me with three three boys who were bigger stronger and more capable and I was always trying to keep up which I'm grateful for in life now because it certainly helped me realize that you can do everything as a girl you don't have to be like the girl 
get on with it. <laughs> yeah. And it's quite interesting, isn't it, when you say that, because obviously, you know, when we were growing up, the girl who always palled around with all the boys and did the football and climbing trees and falling off things was always considered like the tomboy. But now, because of the way kind of children are different and, you know, they want to spend more time playing video games and they don't want to be climbing trees as much. You don't hear that term as much, do you? Yeah, no, but I think video games should be on like time limits. It really, it saddens me when I hear about the amount of kids that will just sit and play video games all weekend. Yeah. The opportunities and the experience they're missing outside makes me sad. Yeah, I mean, I, I would say that to my kids, you know, you kind of sound like the, the grumpy old man. You're saying, oh, you know, there's so many things to do. And, and my kids say, oh, my friends aren't outside. And I'm like, yeah, but there's trees and there's this. And then they go, but you told me not to climb that big tree. I'm like, OK, but, you know, we're, we're looking at levels here. You know, <laughs> your parents are always going to tell you, don't do that. But, you know, just be safe and everything. So, I mean, it's great. I know we moved recently and where we are now, the kids have more exposure to kind of other kids playing around and outdoor activity. And so when they tell me, oh, but I was outside, I'm like, go out again, go out, you know, stay out and enjoy it because you can play the video games when it's dark and you can do all that at a later time, but enjoy the sunshine. Yeah, so true. Yeah. And so for you growing up, you know, in Kent as a teenager, what kind of interest did you have? You were very active, you said, and very adventurous. So did you do lots of different activities? Uh, Through our holidays, we used to go on holiday to Wales every year and we do all kinds of things like kayaking and rock climbing, paddleboarding, co-steering, all kinds of fun stuff. And I was very lucky growing up to be able to have access to horses. So grow up riding horses around, the responsibility of having to get out of bed at 4am and go look after them, go do the horses before school, all that kind of stuff. So I was very active with them. I did pony club and... Um, yeah, that was a really good upbringing. I was an absolute petrol head, though. Loved cars. Got my dad to teach me how to drive when I was about 13. And uh, we, we had a field, so I was quite lucky to be able to learn. And then got my test 16 days after my 17th birthday. Um, not motorbikes, really into cars, though. Uh, motorbikes came after the accident. And was it something, you know, because obviously... When you look at horses, you know, and I, you, you said there you kind of had uh, loved horses, you were kind of obsessed with them. And was it something that was very different, you know, being a petrol head and being a horsey girl as well? Because sometimes you don't see those worlds collide too much. No, and I suppose through my teenage years, I just sort of loved cars and had posters of them on my wall. But whereas like my life really was around horses. Did you compete with any horse riding events or show jumping or? Yeah, yeah, I used to do some eventing. Um, Cross country was always my favourite. Um, but and then lots of the pony club stuff so you do lots of little three-day rallies and things through through that kind of stuff but yeah really really enjoyed that and now when I see a horse I'm just like oh, horse you know like um I don't know people like with puppies I'm not that with horses I get really excited about <laughs> yeah. horses I miss them much did you have scrapes and falls from horses too oh definitely I think the sole purpose in life of a pony like their life mission is to get the rider on the floor. So, um, yeah, you know, I had my fair share, but my mum would always, you know, brush me off, wipe away the tears while secretly checking I was okay, tell me to get back on the horse and you always got back on. And I think that was actually a really powerful thing that I learned early on in life that helped me get back out on the road later on in life after the accident. You know, that you just, you get back on the horse that's what you do yeah i know my dad was a horseman and and my sister was very into horses as a teen and we actually had one or two horses and i remember we had this uh pony and she was like they they call him a connemara gray and uh she was vicious i mean she as you said there with the pony being vindictive she was like you know she didn't want you on her and <laughs> i know my, my dad grew up breaking horses so he was very well experienced and experienced with them but he always used to say she is one of the most difficult horses i've ever worked with and it seems like you said her sole mission is to get you off her back <laughs> amazing i always enjoyed the naughty ponies as a kid i was i always had, ended up with naughty ponies and loved them I remember a pony club when we it came to like swap ponies 
I was never allowed to swap because the teacher wouldn't trust somebody else being on my pony because they were such a little s. Uh, but I loved it because it made it more exciting and fun and you had to like handle it. Ah, I just loved it. I loved the adventure of it. <laughs> yeah. And did you, you know, was it because when people look at, let's say, dogs and as you mentioned, puppies, when you lose a dog, it's like losing a family member and stuff. So I'm so f- sure for you growing up, there was horses that you lost and everything. Is it the same for you when you lose a horse as you lose a dog or a cat? Do you find it? Well, I think the the way that we tend to interact with horses seems to be a little bit more short term because you often hear of people having a horse for a few years and then changing horses and you sell horses, you buy horses. You don't see the same kind of thing with dogs. You tend to have a dog for yeah. its life unless, you know, life changes. Um, when we grew up, though, we we didn't have our own ponies uh i guess fund wise we we didn't have our own ponies but we had land so we would have ponies from the local riding school on on holiday so they'd come to us for six or eight weeks and it would be a break from being in the riding school and then we'd get them to ride because if you think about the monotonous and every day going around a riding school with all these kids whereas coming with us we'd go off hacking it would be like a holiday for these ponies so every six or eight weeks we were getting a new a new pony to ride which was fantastic for your your learning and your skills because you're constantly tackling a different kind of animal um once i got into my teens we started to then have have a pony and you do get really attached but there's an element of when you do then change horses there's a reason like you've got bigger and you need a bigger pony or you want to start doing cross country and that horse doesn't have what it takes etc so you certainly do get attached when um I got uh, Harry, who was four when I got him, and I taught him everything he knew. I ended up selling him when he was 13 because I I went off to university. But he came to our wedding, and I got to be the princess on a horse at the wedding. It was absolutely incredible. And I think he's probably the only horse in the world I would have trusted with 110 guests, confetti, everything going on, and me bareback in a wedding dress. It was like a dream come true. Did you ride side saddle because of the dress? No, I just got on him, dressed everywhere, <laughs> all over his bum. Draping. Oh, it was absolutely incredible. And the photos were pretty magical. Made it into London Brides magazine with our wedding photos, which was pretty amazing. Four page spread. <laughs> That's really cool because, you know, you see sometimes and, you know, my big fat gypsy wedding or these shows, you see the chariot and the horses, but you don't normally see the bride coming in on the uh, bareback on the horse. No, I was bareback. (laughs) Brilliant, brilliant. And it's true, isn't it? Because as you said there, the thing about horses, they're more of a working animal. And what happens is a lot of the time, you know, they serve a purpose and you get attached to them, but then things change and you move on and get a different horse. You know, you're probably discovering that now with motorbikes too. <laughs> yeah, true. I definitely threw my leg over a lot of different motorbikes. <laughs> I saw as well, you you did kite surfing and stuff. So did you do a lot of other adventure activities as a teen and kind of con- continue them into your 20s? Once I went to university, I kind of discovered a whole new world of sports. So I started snowboarding, skydiving, rock climbing, um, all kinds of things. It wasn't until I met my husband that I discovered oh, wakeboarding once I started. I didn't discover kite surfing until I met my husband. He, we kind of learned together. And that became like we live for the wind. Before the accident, we would be constantly looking at where the wind's going to be, which beach we need to go to. Friday night, we'd get in the van and we'd kite surf. If there was no wind, we'd rock climb, mountain bike, anything else. We were just so sporty. I cycled to work every day, fitness. I did about 100 miles a week commuting, gymmed three, probably on average three days a week in my lunch break. Like I was really, really fit and active before the accident. Uh, that changed pretty dramatically but yeah kite surfing all the holidays of kite surfing yeah wow really nice i mean it's cool yeah because i imagine you know the more you got into those adrenaline fueled sports the more addictive it became because it's kind of hard isn't it to play badminton after jumping out of planes and you know kite surfing it's there's some sports that have that adrenaline fueled pace where other sports are exciting but maybe don't have that yeah the adrenaline the endorphins fully addictive 
So for you, I, I see that you worked in marketing for like 10 years or so. So did you have a lot of different jobs, you know, before you finally decided what you wanted to do? Did you work much as a teenager in part-time jobs or with horses or different things? Yeah, the second I was old enough, I got a paper round and I did a paper round. I think I got two days off a year and I was up at half five before school every day, but it meant I had had my own pocket money, had money to spend, which was just incredible as, as a teenager. Once I was old enough, I started waitressing, then I did bar work. Uh, I did some uh, groom work on a horse and carriage for weddings in summer months. I Once I got my car, I did pizza delivery, all of those sort of typical jobs, carried on with bar work through university. Once I'd done my university degree, I actually did a, a semester in America in North Carolina University and an industrial work placement in the Bahamas for a year and a half. Did that, then I decided to do my master's and then coming out of my master's, I got an internship for six weeks at a company in Oxford where I then got a job as a project manager off the back of it and I then carried on working there for six years and sort of climbed my way up to an account director. Uh, I was working in that company at the time of the accident. I was on my cycle home from work. And then it was, what year are we now? Probably six, five, five or six, five years ago, maybe six years ago, I decided to change jobs and moved from, that was kind of reputation comms management. And then I moved into more direct marketing and worked there for about four years until I just had to, I, I needed, I had to quit. Basically, I just had too much going on with my recovery. I'd had I think I had over a year and a half off work over five years through through recovery and surgeries and stuff. And it just reached a point where I was just like, I just need to, you know, work, work was really supportive, but they were only really, really supportive for so long. Uh, so um, quit that. Uh, enabled me to put more energy into the girl on a bike, which was, which was pretty incredible. And uh, I've not looked back. I want to get on, obviously, to your accident and how Girl and the Bike started and everything. But one thing there, going back to when you lived in the Bahamas, so I obviously when I was researching your your life, that was very interesting to me. The fact you lived in the Bahamas and you shipped in a motorbike and you were the only motorbike there, weren't you? Yeah, when I got it, I was I was the only one. Um, it was a case of I was a student, I couldn't afford a car, I needed a way to go around the island, and I thought, why don't I get a motorbike? never ridden one but how hard could it be other people ride bikes i'm sure i can figure it out and learn so i went online ordered this bike from china had it shipped in and it arrived in a box wow and i'm not talking about like a motorbike in a box i'm talking about the parts of what would be a motorbike if you knew how to put them together in a box <laughs> oh gosh <laughs> and the island the island how do you pronounce that eleuthera or how do you... eleuthera 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 so it's one of the family islands i've never heard of that island I it's absolutely stunning. It was, I'm sure it's developed a fair amount since I was there. It was, what, 12 years ago? Gosh, that makes me feel old. <laughs> Don't worry. You have the college and you're fine. So <laughs> so when you were there in the Bahamas, and obviously it, it was, a, I, I know it was a, a Enduro 250 bike you had, I think. So, you know, you built that up and you got someone to help you and you you kind of, did you think to yourself, wow, I really like this. And, you know, did you kind of do a lot of off-road things there? And how, what, how did you find places to ride there? Um, that bike was purely to get around. It was not a, a pleasure thing. I didn't get biking. I wasn't like, wow, this is amazing. I just want to go ride. I wouldn't describe it as an enduro bike. It's like a Chinese wannabe Honda. It was... Um, an A to B that could handle a bit of sand getting to the beaches and sand tracks. The island is was very remote. There wasn't a single traffic light, no white lines. If you wanted to get to a beach, you needed a vehicle that could get down there. So, I mean, I quickly figured out how to handle this bike. Uh, I definitely dropped it quite a lot, but it was never like I was a biker. I just needed it to get around. I strapped my spear down the side for spearfishing, fins on the back, and I just kind of explored the island. I didn't see myself as a biker in any way at all. I came back to the UK. I did then get my full license. Um, that's more of my petrol head thing, like in collecting licenses. Um, but I didn't have a bike for a really long time. I, I didn't see myself as a biker. It was purely a means to get around the island. 
Right. I have this vision of you kind of like Lara Croft style on the bike with a, with a spearfish, you know, <laughs> riding to the marina and diving into the water. You know, it was like your own action movie. Yeah, I don't think it was quite that glamorous, but I like the picture. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's good. It's, it's a good, a good picture. So obviously then, you know, you had been doing all of these things and... Then in 2014, I think March 2014, was it? Um, you had the accident. So you had mentioned earlier that you used to do a lot of cycling. So this particular day, you started off, just went for a cycle, and then everything changed. Hayes is going to join us for the next bit of the interview. This is what, what, what's your dog's name? This is Hayes. Um, Hello, Hayes. Hello, Hayes. Look, look this way, Hayes. No, she hasn't got. She doesn't have to use a webcam. Yeah, they're like, who's this strange voice? Yeah. So so I, as I said there, so March 2014, went for a cycle and everything changed for you. Yeah, it was a, it was a standard Tuesday. I was cycling home from work, as I did. I was actually on the way to the lake to go wakeboarding. And a, a car coming the other way decided not to stop at their red light. And they cut across in front of me, leaving me nowhere to go. And I just went straight to the side of the car. Right shoulder took full impact and I landed onto my right hip. Now I life changed like that in an instant. That was that was a pretty dramatic transformation. The the reality is I wasn't a bleeding mess or anything, I wasn't scraped up off the ground by paramedics or anything, but I did I went to hospital in an ambulance. I was discharged from hospital later that night with bruising. Now, if we fast forward seven years, I've had seven surgeries, included a reconstructed right shoulder and right hip. So if you think about the reality of bruising versus the actual implication of that impact, it kind of gives you a bit of an idea of quite how much of a battle and a roller coaster it's been trying to get my body back. Now, I was always trying to get back to being pain free. Unfortunately, I've had to readjust my expectations. I live and manage hip pain now. Uh, my shoulder's doing really well. I just call it grumpy, but my, my hip is a lot more of an ongoing issue. Uh, I've done everything I do and try to do everything I can to kind of keep it going, but I'm refusing to not, you know, get up and attack life just because, you know, my body's had an impact in the past. I, I don't want it to define my future. Uh, I don't go anywhere about painkillers, but that's the home I'm in, you know, do, to try and do the best i can with it yeah and you know that one thing i want to go back to there is you know normally in a, a lot of bike accidents maybe the car hits the bike but you had the situation where the car was in front of you you hit it and obviously went over the car or over the handlebars so it was a different type of accident because you impacted the car and then it was more the impact i suppose of the road did more of the damage wasn't it uh half half the car half the road i didn't go over it it was like riding into a brick wall um dead okay. stop fell over uh, i i kept myself very lucky because a couple of seconds differently like i imagine if it was i might not yeah. be here i might not be walking i mean I, I feel very lucky that it happened how it did because i mean i'm still alive for a start you know <laughs> Could have been so much worse. Could have been. And, you know, that's interesting, the the whole thing about, as you said, the bruises. You know, we get bruised bones and, you know, hot spots on your bones and that. But they obviously discharged you and thought, oh, okay, it's fine. But your your whole body, the excuse the pun, the, 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 the chassis of your body, like a motorbike, was all out of shape, wasn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um I don't want to go too much into the, like the details of the medical side, but there was certainly some serious misdiagnosis and the wrong tests or not really looking at things properly multiple times across the years. And it was incredibly difficult getting lots of different opinions and seeing second and third, even fourth people who would eventually listen to me saying, I hurt and I'm not all right. And they'd look and do the right tests and go, Oh, yeah, I'm not surprised you hurt. Mm. Yeah, it was it was challenging. Um, but I'd say that the the mental recovery has been as hard as the physical. Yeah. And then, you know, it's really interesting that you let's say you're in hospital and they say, OK, you'll be fine. Just, you know, relax, rest up. Uh, but then when you go forward, as you say, seven years later, or, 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 you know, you've had all these different surgeries 
you say, wow, that's, as you say, there are some misdiagnoses there. But how did you, the first time you went to the doctor about having a surgery, I mean, they said, well, look, your hip's out of shape or it needs to be aligned or whatever. You know, was that something they said you can do if you want to or you need to do it? Um, it depends which specialist we're talking about. For my hip, the first specialist I went to see laughed me out of his room and was horrendous. The third specialist really? I saw did the right test and went, blimey, you need surgery. You are on complete medical rest. No wonder you're in a lot of pain. Let's book you in. Wow, that's really, that's crazy, isn't it? That one, there can be so many different opinions, you know? Yes, it's really, really dramatic. Uh, I've had similar-ish challenges with my shoulder. So the accident was in April. My first shoulder surgery was in October. And the actual reconstruction of my shoulder, which was a surgery I probably, well, I should have had the week of the accident, wasn't until the April, the year after. Are they both on the same side or opposite sides, the hip and the shoulder? Same sides. Yeah, that's quite interesting because... I found as well over the years, I, I I did some damage to my shoulder a few years ago. And then let's say if I was doing any swimming, the rotator cuff would get damaged. And I had done martial arts for years. So my knee, my right knee was always a problem. And then I kind of realized all of these things are on the right side of my body. So I think sometimes, whether it's through accident or even natural use, sometimes you have a side of your body that's weaker and maybe can be injured quicker, no? Ah, uh, well, if you hit a car, I don't think your body gets much <laughs> Yeah, <So. laughs> for sure. But But I think in your case, obviously, when both were on the one side, it makes it a lot more difficult because, you know, you might feel like unbalanced yeah no definitely like i get knee pain now as a result for of how my hip is because you're not you're always slightly compensating in those surgeries was it a case of you know uh setting the bones differently or what what was the main problem with your hip for example um it was a big mixture so in my hip i've had bone work i've had soft tissue repair i've had limb repair i've had stem cell treatment i've had full uh, removal of all of the cartilage replacement of all the cartilage uh, more bone work so quite a lot going on yeah, yeah. Well, I, I suppose one good thing, you know, is that in the UK, obviously, with the NHS, the health service is much better. I would hate to be doing all those surgeries in the United States where you would be, you know, it would be like paying for a mortgage. So that's the thing that, you know, as well as the waiting and everything, there's also the expense. Yeah, I was, I was fortunate that I had private medical insurance through the company that I worked at. Um, when I made the decision to obviously leave the, the job, I had to take on, I we chose, my husband, to take on the cost of continuing private medical insurance ourselves. Um, despite the driver being you know, obviously responsible for the whole lot and having to fund stuff through their insurance. My premium still went up to nearly five grand a year. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly an extent expense. And, you know, obviously we do have an incredible NHS system. I think I'd probably still be in recovery waiting for surgeries if I wasn't able to have been able to, you know, support myself with private medical insurance because it, it reduces cues big time. And then as well as the physical, you know, obviously recovery, the mental recovery as well, because I'm sure, you know, for a lot of people, especially when you have an injury and someone's telling you, no, no, you don't, you're fine. Or it's in your head or whatever. That can be kind of a little bit damning for your mind because you're like, no, I know I'm sick or I know I'm sore and I know I have this and you're telling me rest it up which a lot of doctors tend to do now. They don't even want to be hands-on. Yeah. So mentally, the re the recovery from that whole accident must have been quite difficult, no? Yeah, definitely. And every time you have to go back in for more surgery, it's like 10 steps backwards. And I'd kind of describe it like a roller coaster. So really deep, horrible downs, bed-bound, huge amounts of pain and really dark days. But then higher points where I was a little bit more active, I was you know, doing a bit more rehabilitation, and then realizing those complications, back down for more surgery. And each time that cycle came, it got harder and harder, if anything. 
I was diagnosed with um, a multiple mental health disorders. So fear of the road was one of them, which um, certainly made the decision to get a motorbike <laughs> a little, little bit more tricky. And then also change disorder. So for me, change disorder manifested in me not seeing myself as me. I okay. Vanessa was this fit, strong, capable girl pre-accident. She could do 13 pull-ups and three sets. She was fit. And this broken, pathetic, painful body, it wasn't me. I would talk about myself in the third person, um, which was incredibly confusing for other people because they were like, wait, who's Vanessa? I thought you were Vanessa. And um, it took me getting to a point where I realized that I needed help. I'm very proud of myself for realizing that and I did get help and it certainly didn't happen overnight. It was a really painful, very emotional, horrible journey getting help. But eventually over time, I learned to not necessarily love my body, but I learned to accept my body and that acceptance of my situation was an incredibly important part of my ability to nurture, repair, love and look after my body like it really needed to cope with the physical elements that it was going through. Mindfulness is something that really, really helped me through my recovery. And I would say I use it 10 plus times a day just through my day. Uh, so the bit of mindfulness for me was the the learning that you are in you can be more in control of your, your thoughts. So bringing the subconscious thoughts through to conscious. Now, I'll keep, I'll try and explain this. If you think about your thoughts, your thoughts are directly linked to your emotions. So if you start thinking and focusing on the pain that you're sat in, so like right now, my hip is hurting. It doesn't like being sat down for long periods of time. And I can, I'm aware of my hip. And if I let my mind focus on that, I'm in pain. This sucks. This is unfair. Why do I have to have this body? I wish I didn't hurt. You start going down in this downward spiral of self-hate, self-pity to the point that you end up getting upset because your emotions are linked to your thoughts. Then you're upset. Yeah. Then my husband probably gets upset because I'm upset. And at the end of it, I'm in the exact same body with the exact same pain, but now I'm upset. So by using mindfulness, I've learned to recognize my triggers. So that initial first thought of like, ah, oh, my hip hurts, where I then start to spiral down and go, you know what, Vanessa? No, mm. we're not even going to go there. Put that thought out the window. Let's focus on the fluffy dog that's sat in your lap or the birds or let's call someone or let's go make a cup of tea. Just think about anything but that because there is no point. Because all it will do is get you upset and it won't change your situation in any way. So mindfulness has really helped me in processing, I guess, my situation. Yeah, that's a, because really what it is from that moment when you have that ailment or pain and you start spiraling, it's a wasted journey because once you've done all that complaining, fighting with your loved ones, whatever, you know, and as you said, feeling sorry for yourself, all of these things, you go back and your hip is still sore. So you have to address it in a different way, don't you? And, and say, look, yeah. Rather than me getting in the mood and storming off to the room and, you know, because the truth here is even for people who are with somebody who has a condition, whether it's cancer, whether it's any kind of, you know, serious illness or recovering from an illness, it's also mentally challenging because they have to deal with their moods and they have to deal with the, the different person they can be and even the mental yeah. side of it. So like that. I can't manage your pain, but I can try and help you through that pain. But if you don't let me, it's very difficult, isn't it? Yeah, and it's incredible how exhausting and all-consuming pain can be. It can be very easy to project that on the people around you. So I've certainly learned to be a lot more aware of my energies. And um, I think it's really important to try and focus on what you have in your control. So I can't control my hip pain. But what can I do? What tools do I have that can help my hip pain? Doing my physio. So many people complain about pain and, well, have you done your physio? Oh, no, no, I haven't, I haven't had time. And it's like, well, then stop complaining. You have something that you can do that will help it. What nutrition can I give my body to, to help with what it's dealing with? So for me, active collagen is one of them. I also take rose hip and I eat incredibly well. I eat a very healthy, nutritious diet to give my body everything it needs i sleep well 
I have my painkillers. They're my best friend and my worst enemy because I don't want to take them, but sometimes you need them. Uh, and you obviously got that element as well of your body wanting you to want them when you don't need them because of the addictive nature of them, which is why I say that your best friend and your worst enemy. And the, the, uh, the bit that entertains me is often my husband knows me so well, he often knows that I need to take a painkiller before I do. Uh, yes. because of like how I am you'd be like do you need to take a painkiller like, <laughs> something you're forgetting no <laughs> yeah yeah that's it like I mean people you know partners know the other partner so well and they can preempt something yeah. and they're like okay I have something coming it's like you know in any good relationship the partner whether it be the husband or wife or husband husband whatever they know, okay, it's time to leave the room maybe. And, or, you know, it's like I even said to my kids, he's th my boy is throwing a tantrum. And I'm like, just go to your room, think about what you're doing and then come out. And, you know, and, and that's mindfulness in kids even because you have to kind of go, I'm just wasting my time and the other person's <laughs> yeah. time here. I have to deal with this in a different way. I mean, yeah. hit a punch bag, run, run down the road, scream and do whatever you have to. But just kind of, we, we can't, um, nowadays I think, People sometimes can focus too much on the self-pity and everything. You need to get away from that and say, how else can I address it? Yeah, self-pity gets you nowhere. So then the bikes, I mean, obviously you, you, you always had the love for cars and you had dabbled a bit with bikes and everything and you've been in the Bahamas with the bikes. So then in your recovery, that, that or those moments when you were in the bed recovering, did you say, okay, my life's going to be different now. I'm going to do things. I want to ride bikes. I want to do this. How was that process? No, no, no. There, there was nothing that intelligent about the situation at all. It just okay. kind of uh, a sequence of a few events, and it kind of just took me on a different path. Um, like body-wise, I mean, I haven't actually even gone back to kite surfing yet now. There's a lot of expectation management. My body is very different than it, what it used to be. So I was in one of the higher points of the roller coaster. So I was a little bit more active than able, but still physically unable to do sports. And I was massively battling with getting to work in central Oxford. The, the traffic, the parking, the time. It would take me like an hour and a half to do a journey that I could do on my bike in 25 minutes. Or if there was no traffic, it'd be 20 minutes. Like it was just killing me. I was having to get up so early to try and beat the traffic, get into work early. And then, you know, when you're in like management roles, you don't leave early because you got there early. It just doesn't. No. I was just ended up doing such long days. So it was one Friday night. I sat with my husband and I sort of daydreamed off. And I was like, can I get a motorbike? Genius. I can save money on petrol, skip traffic, not have to worry about parking. And it'd be really, really fun. Now, at this point, my brain wasn't thinking about what getting a motorbike actually meant, i.e. I'd have to go out on the road. So anyway, there just turned out to be a Suzuki Bandit 600 in our town, went to sit the next day, got me some bike kit on Sunday, and I rode it to work on the Monday, um, which was horrific. Something that I cannot emphasize enough is how terrifying it was getting on a motorbike every single part of my my body and my mind told me it was a really bad idea and that I was going to die and for anyone who's cried in a motorcycle helmet you realize like how awkward it is like you can't really get your hands in you've got gloves on you once you get the water in there it starts to steam up and I mean I joke about it but I had a lot of tears a lot of huge freak outs on the bike and the first time fifth time 10th time, 100th, 200th time I got a motorbike, even years on, I would still have huge freakouts and flashbacks to the accident. Um, I had to really work through it. Mindfulness helped me a lot. The fact that as a kid, you always got back on the horse helped me a lot. And then there was this, this sense of pure determination that this, this lady that hit me had taken so much away from me. I wasn't going to let her keep controlling me. Like I had to overcome that fear and get back out on the road because the reality is you can have a horrific accident in the shower, on the toilet, you know. Yes, motorbikes are statistically a little bit more dangerous, but I can't bubble wrap myself through life just because I got injured before. So the off-road bikes then came because I was bed-bound after my first hip surgery. Don't know where it came from. 
And I came up with this idea that I wanted a dirt bike. And my husband is incredibly supportive and was like, okay, <laughs> we'll get you a dirt bike. And we got me one, a little cheap old Yamaha. And it was five months till I could even sit on it. But it really? was there as a reminder every day when I hurt too much and I couldn't find the energy and I didn't have the motivation to try and do my physio. It was sat there as a goal, as a reminder, come on, Vanessa, you want to ride it. And I think goal setting is really important for recovery. You said when you got the bike, you know, and it was like a 600. So where some people are thinking, I'm just going to get a little scooter, you know, moped, <laughs> Vespa, Lambretta or something, uh, you know, to go into town or whatever. But you went for a 600. So was there a part of you or even your husband that was thinking, maybe that's too big? <laughs> no, no, not at all. And I think there's actually an element. I feel safer on a motorbike than I do on a bicycle, which is... It may be linked to the accident, that fact I've gone on a bicycle, but a massive part of it is that you've got the power. And so if you need to not be where you are, the more power you've got to get you out of it. To get out of a corner or something, yeah. Uh, the safer I feel, you know, if they, you know, suddenly there's a car coming and you've got you've got the ability to open that throttle and suddenly be 10 metres forever ahead, um, I think gives you a bit more security. You've also got the size, the sound, that road presence. You've got a lot more respect on the road on a bigger bike. So actually that bike turned into a Harley Davidson quite quickly. And uh, that was a big, a thug, big, loud V-twin. Everyone knows you're there. Um, ended up doing about 20,000 miles on it around Europe across the following years. Um, and then the dirt bikes came into it. There's loads of like random little bits to the story. So it's always a case of which bits to try and focus on with time. <laughs> The thing is with some of those, you know, especially, you know, those BMW road bikes and things, um, they're great, obviously, on the open roads. But sometimes when you have to stop with them and balance them, they're they're quite heavy. And I mean, that takes a lot. I, me and my wife are big fans of the, you know, Long Way Down, the Ewan McGregor, Charlie Boorman shows. Yeah. And, you know, it's it was amazing even watching those guys who were experienced riders, but with some of these enduro bikes and off-road bikes, they had to relearn, obviously, because, you know, you're on, you're on an incline and the bike slows down and then it falls to the side. So yeah. that must have been quite tricky with bigger bikes in the city, no? Uh, well, the Suzuki Bandit 600 isn't really that, that big a bike. It's quite a manageable little commuter. Um, it's not not too heavy. It was it was a really nice bike. Thug, my Harley is three hundred and twenty kilos, but it's quite a low down weight. It doesn't feel that heavy, and I think a lot of people. I for me actually, it's normally non riders that go, well, how could you ride that with your hip and your shoulder? And it's because you don't steer like this on a motorbike. <laughs> you, you steer like this, and once my foot is on a motorbike, my hip doesn't have to move. In a car. My hip is constantly changing pedals. And to this day, it hurts me more being in a car than being on a motorbike. Yeah. And I saw actually one of your posts there this week, I think it was, about going back mountain biking or, or using a mountain bike for training. And you, you, I saw that you said they they changed the bike to suit your hip and everything. Yeah. Because obviously on a, on a normal bicycle, your hips and legs are going up at different levels. So that must be quite hard on your hip, no? Yeah, so I've got an e-bike. It's a, a white E50 um, e, e full suspension mountain bike. And I've tried to get myself back into cycling over the years. I've really tried to push it. And I can never really seem to get past maybe 12 miles uh, of, on the road. And it just, my hip just can't seem to go any more than that. It gets grumpy. Whereas with the e-bike, it takes that top end load off my joint. And it's been amazing. I've only had that bike two weeks and I've probably done, I must be up to maybe 35 or 40 miles. I've been out on it like seven times in two weeks and it just feels, I'm getting fit. I'm so excited to get that cardio fitness back. Obviously, I've got a pretty high level of fitness from the amount of off-road riding I do. But when I'm not on a motorbike, I've struggled for for that fitness because there's an element for me of pain versus pleasure. And running is something I'll never be able to do. Um, but some activities, it, I don't get enough enjoyment out of it for it to be worth the pain. 
It's probably the easiest way to describe it. Whereas going out on my e-mountain bike, the pain is minimized because I've got support of the the electric. And so it's worth it. And it's so fun. And it's given me loads of fitness. I'm, I'm absolutely loving it. I'm pumped to have bought that bike. He's called Woody. He's awesome. Woody. And, and obviously with, um, I mean, I, I ride mountain bikes sometimes, but I've never actually ridden a mountain, an electric mountain bike, you know, like on a track or whatever. So explain to me, like when you're on a, a, a dirt track or a mountain trail or something, do you use the, the electric part of the bike sometimes for climbs and stuff? How do you use it? So it's effectively electric assist. The electrics are always on. You can change how much they support you but it will only support you if you pedal. If you stop pedaling, okay. it's not going to do anything. The more you pedal, the more it will help you. So it just takes that top level off. And you've got different settings through to full turbo where you can ride up things that you couldn't ride up on a normal bike. Even a really fit person, you just can't get up. But the e-bikes just enable you to, to climb I obviously don't have it on that high setting all the time. Um, I try to have it on the, the e-mountain bike setting, which is certainly supporting me, but I'm really definitely having to work. You tend to just ride a little bit further because you are going a bit faster and you've got the assist. So to get the same kind of fitness level, you just go a bit further than you would on a normal bike to get the same side of fitness. And you had mentioned in your post, obviously, about the, the bike I think it was the bike company or the a bike the bike shop had made modifications. So what did they do different with that bike that like made it easier on your hip? Was it the saddle height or the placement of the saddle? What did they change? Yeah, so it was Ace Motorcycles in Monmouth who've been fantastic. And we changed the handlebars and put a handlebar riser on. So the bars are slightly higher, which puts your 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 like a chopper like a chopper not quite a chopper but i'm not as leaning over so if you think about my hip position it opens my hips a little bit okay and the saddle position is also kind of we established the best thing for me but it's basically about having the the smallest pinch into that hip joint that's something you reminded me there because um i as I mentioned earlier, I've, I've done martial arts for years. And one of the most important things, obviously, when you're kicking and lifting your legs is to have open hips, you know, and and when you train uh, being flexible, you know, even now I, I mightn't be training for a couple of years, but I still have very good flexibility in my hips. And um, I always think it's one of these things that even as you get older, if you have your hips open and you can do more with them, I think it's going to prevent you from having a lot more damage or injury in the future. So it's really important, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Um, there, I mean, there's certain stretches that just pinch my joint and it's it's not good for me to go in those positions. I've certainly learned to adapt and live with how my hip is. Uh, but I think any kind of self-maintenance is always going to be a good thing for injury prevention yeah and when you're let's say on a bike you know a big even like a a, a trial bike or any kind of bike that's off-road and you know I, I, some of those bikes maybe could be 100 kg or less or more but when the bike falls you know obviously people are trained to lift the bike a certain way but for you that's a little yeah. more difficult because of your shoulder no uh, yeah i think i just I mean, people always say, oh, you need to back squat, lift it up. Like, so, so for example, the Atoma Twin is, what, 226 kilos. That's a lot of bike to lift up when I'm only 60 kilos. The, the technique that you use makes it work. Uh, you've just got to work out what positions the bike in, what's the terrain around it, and what can my body do. You can front lift it, bar lift it, back lift it. And it's just about trying to adapt to the situation. Every time it's different, picking up a bike and work out what's the best way. Uh, and I suppose I always encourage people to not just look at someone and judge what they're doing based on how your body is, because everybody's body is slightly different. And you know what? It might be easier for them to lift it up by the bar. Uh, and because you think it should be done by a back squat doesn't mean that's the only way you can lift up a bike. Yeah, it has to suit your body. Exactly. Yeah. So and you've done lots of trips, obviously. You mentioned there earlier the 20K around Europe. But one trip there I want to ask you about is that you're two weeks riding on the Tiger 800s in, in, in Bolivia. 
Tell us about that. Was that like mainly road or off-road or what was it? It was a real mix. That was absolutely incredible. Bolivia is a country I highly recommend because it feels like you're going through seven different countries in one because there's such a variation in the terrain from the Alto Plateau to the Salt Flats to the jungles. Uh, it was absolutely incredible. Tiger 800s, it was a real mix of road to off-road. You'd have beautiful twisty tarmac, which were like, I don't know, alpine hairpins and roads, but the size of a Texas road. It was absolutely incredible. Peg scraping through to the tarmac, just stops and suddenly you're on gravel. Um, then you've got the, the salt flats, etc. We went up a, a volcano off-road, massive mix. It was incredible certainly pushed my riding capability to to its extremes back then I was certainly a beginner it was my first ADV um riding really but it was a lot of fun I enjoyed Bolivia okay and uh so like you've done and all the trips you've done you know what kind of was there one uh, Bolivia obviously sounds amazing was there any other trip that really stood out for you that you thought this is amazing Iceland. Iceland, okay. Ride of locals. So ride of locals do organise everything. You can just fly in and they've organised the whole route, the accommodation. Places like Iceland, the best way to see the best stuff is to go with a local uh, that, that knows the place like back of their hand. Uh, we did a week out there on 701s, Husqvarna's. It was the most epic off-roading I've ever done. We were riding at near race pace most of the time. That's the choice of the group we were in. You don't have to ride ridiculously fast. Didn't see other people when you did. It was maybe a couple of four-by-fours or some horse riders. How they got out there, um, I guess the same way of us, exploring. Stayed in mountain huts with log fires. and That trip was amazing. It was insanely wet, insanely cold but the most epic scenery and riding you can experience these trips with me on my youtube there's lots quite a few videos in the iceland series on there yeah i I was looking at some of the videos and some of them are really interesting and uh, when you do those kind of trips do they say okay we have to get one bike that will do all different terrains or do they kind of switch bikes sometimes no that was purely on the 701 off-road capable bike and we were off-road the whole trip so, yeah, yeah, one bike. Uh, I guess depending on the trip, the country where you're going, you know, you, you pick the right bike for it. But I tend to like going places where I can hire the bike where I go because the cost of flying my own bike around or I don't really want to be doing a, a six-month trip. I like being able to just buzz somewhere, do two weeks on a bike, a new terrain, new bike, new experience, new culture and then come home and then experience something else another time. Yeah. And, you know, have you learned a lot more about, obviously, fixing bikes, stripping bikes? Because, obviously, at the beginning, you know, you say, oh, I'll bring it to a mechanic. But then once you have your own garage and you kind of start tinkering with it and learning about it, I'm sure you've learned so much over the last few years. Yeah, absolutely. I think the reality is for me and my husband, we wouldn't be able to afford to do all the riding that we do if we had to pay a mechanic to look after our bikes. My husband's incredibly capable and he's got a lot of patience to teach me, which is amazing. So I've uh, I've learned on the job, basically, and, and all the challenges we've tackled in the past, you know, I've learned what to do. There's obviously huge gaps where... Um, where I haven't had to experience something because it's not gone wrong on my bike yet, for example. But all of the basic stuff on a bike I can do very easily, like wheel bearings and all that kind of stuff. Um, done some sort of full piston changes and things as well on the two strokes. And I just think it's it's the best way to get to know your bike. And when you're out on the trail and something goes wrong, because you've spent the time learning about how your bike works, you're more likely to then be able to sort out and ride home instead of having to call someone for help. Okay. And what's your view now on, you know, electric bikes? Uh, do you do you like them or are you not sure about them or do they feel different? Big lover of electric bikes. My biggest worry about electric bikes is the sourcing of the battery um, with the environmental side of that and the grid being able to power it. But I think the technology as far as the power, the torque, the acceleration absolutely mind-blowing i do not miss the engine sound that is just a freaking old school stuck in your combustion way kind of mindset you've got to ride electric to experience it it's just a completely different experience and i urge everyone to try it it's just silly 
like I've just done um, a video yesterday actually on the Energica Rubella RS out in Italy, naught to 60, 2.6 seconds. Like mind boggling. And that power is there instantly and literally anytime in the power window, right there. Bam, you know what you're getting. It's amazing. What kind of range does that bike have then? Um, more range than you would want to do about having a coffee. <laughs> <laughs> for sure is the is the honest yeah. truth you know you're not going to be able to to ride to the south of spain on one tank but who wants to do that on a motorbike you want to stop for a coffee and stretch your legs and take your helmet off for a bit and it charges up you get to about 80 percent in less than 30 minutes so actually by the time all of your mates have put their gloves back on your bike's back up to to plenty of range so i actually think the technology is is really close to being where it needs to be, I think the price point is still the uh, the biggest blocker because the the bikes that can really do the range and the performance are very expensive. I mean, they're up there with a high performance motorbike, of course. Yeah, so. yeah, that's the thing, isn't it? Electric cars, electric bikes, you know, they're still out of a lot of people's reach. So even though they might be a viable thing, we have to wait and see the whole balance with the, the you know, the carbon footprint of them all. But the thing is, yeah, they're a little expensive now. So for some people, they're more toys, you know, like that's the thing. Yeah, there seems to be like the two ends of the market because you've got things like the Super Soco TC Max, which would be a perfect commuter. Um, it works out about 1p a mile running cost. And the range is well and truly there. I think you can do a 660-mile range. Um, which for most people's commute is more than enough. Uh, and they're like three and a bit grand. Wow, yeah. Like if, you th- if you're paying for a, a train ticket for the year, whatever, an annual train thing, I mean, that bike's probably paid for itself in two years. Easy. That, that's that's a, big, a big difference. Can we talk a little about some of your motorbike victories? Obviously, you had the Louder Enduro, the Rydale Rally, and now obviously you've done very well in the Rally de Maroc. So tell us a little about how you started getting competitive in the rallies. Oh, dear. I wouldn't say I'm competitive. I just enjoy being in a race environment, I suppose. So Paul Bolton, I was riding with him, and he basically said I needed to do something called Valleys Extreme, which is a really good hard enduro in Wales in January. And he managed to persuade me. Anyway, did this race thinking I'm going to die, but I made the finish line and um, did pretty well. And that was kind of my first taster of, I like this racing stuff and I like hard enduro. So we did a couple more of the UK British extremes. And then decided to sign up for Red Bull Romaniacs. Utter madness. And survived. (laughs) I was really chuffed. Made the finish line of Romaniacs. That was this summer. And then decided to start doing rally. So Rally de Maroc was my first big rally. First... um, yeah, I did the Qatar International Baja the week before Rally de Maroc. That was my first time re- doing roadwork, first time hitting sand, first time in the desert. Wow. <laughs> Straight in the deep end. <laughs> Survived, came second in the women's. There were three of us, so I was pleased with that. And then in Rally de Maroc, I unfortunately had a mechanical issue, and so I didn't finish Rally de Maroc. But as the only female in the Enduro Cup category, the organisers, you know, I guess, saw my performance and if I hadn't had a medical, medical, not a mechanical issue, I'm very, very confident I would have finished the race. And so, yeah, they awarded me with the female prize for the Enduro Cup, which is pretty cool. That's nice, isn't it? Very tough for that. That was a brutally hard rally. It was very, very long days, hard terrain, tricky navigation, um, tough really really tough. tough and do you in and for those events now do you bring your bike with you or do you like you you do so you have your bike because obviously you're working on your bike in your garage and you and do you bring that in trailers or how do you ship it yep yep out trailer and car and uh, i'm on a honda crf 450rx with a few sort of modifications like my own suspension the big nav tower etc 
And yeah, drive down to Morocco. The journey home was 63 hours straight. There were four of us in the truck and we rotated drivers. We didn't stop 63 hours. 63. Wow. That's that's much longer than the rally. Nearly, yeah. <laughs> actually, yeah, I think it was 57 hours of riding. So yeah, actually it was. Wow, wow. So obviously, you know, the when we look then at, you know, the social media and YouTube and Instagram, you know, and you've, you're doing really well and you've lots of followers and, and the whole phenomena of the girl on a bike, you know, uh, when you started that, was that kind of just something you threw out there or, and that now it's grown into this big thing? How, how did that come about? Yeah, I never, I never expected it to be like this. If you told me six years ago, this is what I'd be doing now. I'd probably drink on my drink. <laughs> I was bedbound after a surgery and I just felt like I needed something to put some energy into. It started off with me posting photos of me pre-accident. Like, look how cool I used to be. I used to kite surf and snowboard and I then ran out of photos. And I thought, well, why don't I be real? Why don't I share what I'm going through? And it, I kind of thought maybe I can connect with some other people and learn from you know, what they've learned from going through similar things and maybe we can help each other. And uh, I didn't expect it, my story to resonate with so many people and it's just grown and grown and grown. And I, yeah, I now have, I think, 220,000 followers across the socials. I, uh, I speak to a lot of people all around the world every day and it's incredible. Um, the energy that I get from followers and the energy that they get from, from me and my random shenanigans pushing on through life with my little reconstructed body. I feel very, very lucky and very grateful for all those people out there choosing to keep updated with what I'm up to. Brilliant. Yeah. I mean, it's really inspiring, you know, and it's not, it's not just inspiring for women, but it's inspiring for everybody because it's great to see that, let alone your surgeries and the accident you had, but it's great to see that somebody who hasn't been in that world all their life can make the decision. I'm going to start motorbike riding. I'm going to start doing enduro rally. That's an achievement in itself. But then when you consider because of your accident and the limitations maybe on your body that you've still done it, where other people might have turned away, that's an even bigger achievement. So I, I think that's fabulous. Yeah, I certainly encourage everyone to never think they can't start something. It's never too late. Everyone was a beginner once and you can be a beginner at any time in your life. Yeah, for sure. Well, look, you know, Vanessa, I'm not going to keep you too much longer. That's I just, you know, it's been a pleasure having you on the show and really interesting life so far, really interesting stories. And I'm sure there's so much more to come and we will be posting all your socials and everything so people can follow your story and get inspired from everything you do thanks so much it's been an absolute honor being on thank you for having be interested in a little me and my story so thank you you're welcome and, and and best of luck with everything vanessa rock everybody okay thank you very much vanessa we really enjoyed that interview and you know such an amazing life and you know you've bounced back from injury and you're doing all these fantastic things and an adventurous life here you know, you're really inspiring and we hope people can take a lot of inspiration from your story and, you know, all the things you've done and the things you are doing right now. And, you know, it's fabulous to see you tour in all these different countries and doing your things. So thank you very much and I appreciate you coming on the show and the best of luck with everything. Okay, everybody, I hope you enjoyed the show. This is the Collective Whisper podcast. My name is Simon Kay and it's been a pleasure having you and please subscribe to our channel and follow us if you can and stay tuned for more exciting episodes and exciting guests take care of yourself take care of your loved ones and we will talk to you soon bye bye mm -hmm.